Hello, I'm Harriet Vickers and welcome to the April edition of the JNMP podcast. JNMP's Editor's Choice this month reports on deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's sufferers, which can offer symptom relief where medical therapies haven't controlled the disease. The Unit of Functional Neurosurgery at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery London specialises in the procedure. And Dr Tom Fultony told me about the success they've had using an image rather than microelectrode guided technique. We're very pleased that in our hands the risk of haemorrhage is very, very small indeed and therefore we're far less likely to lead to patients having negative outcomes after surgery. But before that... It's thought that we maintain our knowledge of words relatively well into late life, and this assumption is key to use of certain tests for assessing cognitive ability prior to dementia onset. However, this week's JNMP Patients' Choice paper has found otherwise. With colleagues, Professor Robert Wilson from the Rush University Medical Centre, Chicago, USA, investigated how vocabulary and reading skills relate to mild dementia, and he joins me on the line now. So hello, Robert. Thanks very much for speaking to me. Well, thanks for having me on. So, first off, you had a slightly unusual cohort for this study. Can you tell me who they were and how that came about? Uh, Yes, the the subjects in the study are older Catholic nuns, priests, and brothers who have agreed to annual evaluations, medical evaluations, and to donate their brain in the event that they die during the course of the study. We began the study, actually we began it probably about 1989 when we made the first moves. Um, But we approached um, Catholic religious orders because the idea of brain autopsy uh, was kind of new at that time, and uh, we felt that we would be more successful working with them because of their altruism and uh, their comfort in contemplating their own mortality. And and because you had this autopsy consent, you you could use uh, brain pathology indicators rather than uh, cognitive measures such as the the mini mental state examination, which previous studies have relied on. Right. Most studies have have simply uh, diagnosed whether or not people have dementia using behavioral tests, and we were able to do it in this study using actual brain autopsy. When we have to rely on clinical diagnosis, uh, we don't exactly get the true picture of the underlying disease, nor can we separate different kinds of, of underlying disease. It's very difficult. Uh, with the brain autopsy, we're quite certain that we've got that part of the study correct. Great. So what, what were the, the, the neuropathological signs that you were able to examine? Well, we looked at... Um, plaques and tangles, which are related to Alzheimer's disease, buildups of abnormal proteins in the brain. And they can only really reliably be quantified when we do an autopsy after a person's died. And we quantified their presence and density in different areas of the brain and came up with an overall measure of how much Alzheimer's disease pathology you have. And that's important because some people have die with a lot of Alzheimer's disease pathology, but they're not always showing the clinical signs. And some people show clinical signs of the disease, but don't have that much pathology. Mm. Uh, now, in addition to Alzheimer's disease pathology, we also looked for Lewy bodies, which are the main pathological finding in Parkinson's disease. 
and there's also a form of dementia called Lewy body dementia. And then we look for strokes or infarction. Uh, we look for large strokes, and we also look for microscopic strokes that can only be found through uh, chemical tests, if you will. So these are the most common um, pathological findings in the brains of older people. They are all associated with various kinds of dementia. And, and what were the, the main findings that you had? Well, the, the, uh, the main part of the study is that during life, we were measuring each year uh, we gave people tests of their vocabulary, and we also gave them reading tests. And these are skills that are generally thought to be quite well preserved as we age, even in people who are developing dementia, at least mild dementia. Um, we tested these skills every year, and some people for well over a decade before they died. And then we measured how, how quickly these skills were changing over time. And we tried to relate that to the pathology that we found in the brains of these individuals. And what we found was that um, there was a very strong relationship between how much Alzheimer's disease pathology you, you had in your brain when you died and how rapidly your reading skills and your vocabulary were declining. So clearly, uh, mild problems with reading and vocabulary symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And, and what about the other what about the others? What about the, the Lewy bodies and the infarctions? Uh, we also found that they contributed, though not quite as strongly. Uh, actually uh, infarction contributed to decline in vocabulary. It didn't seem to affect the reading and Lewy bodies affected both. Okay. What kind of uh, decline are, are we talking about? What what sort of difference does does it make to to your reading your vocab having these these pathological signs present? Well, um, it is true that these skills are the the sort of the last skills to decline when we're starting to decline in old age. So they are rather resistant. But our study shows that that while they're resistant, they aren't successfully resistant. And in our profession it's been common to gauge uh, one's, a person's overall level of ability by how well they can read or define words. Mm. And this has been a way to try to understand how a person might have performed on a memory test before they started to develop, say, Alzheimer's disease. And our study suggests that that strategy is probably not uh, a correct one. What do you think should change um, with these tests? And we've got things like the, the National Adult Reading Test, which kind of work on the assumption that um, these are performed normally by people with, with mild dementia, but your findings suggest otherwise. So how would you like to, to see things go forward now? Well, I think that we have to recognise that, that there's no change we can make in this test to that uh, will make it uh, unaffected by Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease really affects all of our mental abilities. And therefore, if we want to know how somebody performed before they had Alzheimer's disease, um, it's a very difficult task, and we have to rely on indicators like education and the person's occupational level to give us mm. a rough idea of how they performed. But otherwise, we may have to simply 
measure cognitive performance over time and measure whether cognition is actually declining, which is the main symptom of Alzheimer's disease. Sure. Are are there any other applications you think this paper and and further work in the area could have? Well, I think um, a, a real challenge for those of us in the field is trying to understand uh, the sort of behavioral footprint of these different abnormal proteins that are causing dementia. Uh, now it's, it's difficult to do so, do so, and I think it's going to take uh, clinical pathological studies like this where we can carefully correlate how much of each of these proteins are in your brain with the different manifestations in your behavior over time to really understand how to diagnose these disorders earlier so that we'll be in a position to treat them as treatments are developed. That was Robert Wilson on the neuropathology of dementia and how it affects word knowledge. A 10-minute walk from BMA House in London and our recording studio is the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. Within the hospital is the unit of functional neurosurgery, dedicated to treating movement disorders using deep brain stimulation, or DBS. Along with international co-authors, members of the unit have reported outcomes of 79 Parkinson's patients who had DBS of their subthalamic nucleus. However, the unit's technique differs from that used in the majority of centres and could be safer and more effective. The team's Dr Tom Faulkney joined me to tell me more. So hello Tom, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you Harriet. What is it about the way that your team performs DBS that is non-standard? What we do at our unit is we have a priority of safety first and making sure that every patient that leaves the unit is better off than when they, they come. We adopt a very much an image-guided approach to the surgery. Every patient will have an MRI scan immediately before the surgery with a stereotactic frame in place and we use that frame to calculate coordinates within the brain to where we're going to place the electrodes directly and targeting the subthalamic nucleus. Our priority is as often as possible to ensure that each patient only has one penetration through the brain. So we use a, a blunt impedance electrode to pass through the brain tissue itself whereas other centres will often use quite fine and quite sharp microelectrodes in order to record from different areas deep within the brain and decide which is the best signature of the subthalamic nucleus. So by avoiding multiple passes, we reduce the risk of inadvertently damaging blood vessels and causing bleeding. And there's been worries that with this image-guided technique, it could be less accurate than using multiple electrodes. Did the results of your study shine any light on that? Well, our efficacy data is at least as good as any published from around the world, and that includes Grenoble, where they have the longest experience of using microelectrode recorded STN-DBS, and they have very good efficacy data but we have a, an improved safety record compared with that centre and any other international centre as well. In terms of accuracy, we always do a post-operative MRI scan to look to see how exactly our electrodes are placed, and we um, calculate that our mean error is approximately 1.3 millimetres from where we're targeting our electrodes, so that area is very small indeed. 
And what were your efficacy outcomes? How, how does this procedure benefit patients? So what we do, we see patients without their regular Parkinson's medications before surgery and again after surgery, after they've had their STNDBS programmed optimally. And we use a scale called the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale to judge the severity of their Parkinson's at those two periods. Now, comparing the two, we see approximately 50 to 55% improvement in the severity of Parkinson's symptoms, which is quite substantial and leads to a quite um, dramatic improvement in activities of daily living and quality of life. And and these are the the motor symptoms, is that right, that you're talking about? Yes, that's right. So we do look at motor symptoms as our main outcome, but we also are paying increasing attention to non-motor symptoms, and that's part of systematic follow-up that we're doing at the moment. Um, And what about your your safety outcomes? You said that was something that's very important for for the units, and also noticed in your paper you write that because DBS only improves quality of life and it can't cure or prevent death in Parkinson's, this really should be paramount, it should should meet very high standards. Um, So what were the safety outcomes that you had in your results? We're very pleased that in in this series of patients that had SDN-DBS, we had no patients that suffered from a hemorrhage of any sort. In large published series, um, approximately 5% of patients undergoing STN-DBS will sustain a hemorrhage about 2% being asymptomatic, therefore of minor consequence, but 2% will be symptomatic and therefore detrimental to the patient, and the final 1% can cause severe disability or death. So we're very pleased that in our hands, the risk of hemorrhage is very, very small indeed, and therefore we're far less likely to lead to patients having negative outcomes after surgery. Something else I wanted to ask you about, and I believe this is more your role in the unit, is... Um, actually selecting patients for, for DBS. In your paper, you had a fair degree of interpatient variability in, in the response with quite a, a wide standard deviation in, in the mean outcome. So, so how important is the actual selection process? Well, the selection process is very important. Um, we obviously only choose those patients that have got significant disability despite optimization of medications because even though the risks are small in our hands, we really don't want to expose anyone to the risks of surgery unless there's sufficient justification. The, the magnitude of their response to levodopa is a very good guide, an approximation, but quite a good one, to the magnitude of improvement that they'll get with DBS. And of course, DBS acts consistently and constantly throughout the 24 hours, whereas levodopa waxes and wanes over the 24-hour period, and that's, that's the advantage from the surgery. We have learnt that we shouldn't operate on patients too early in their disease, particularly because some patients may evolve into less typical Parkinsonian syndromes um, that do not respond as well to DBS. We know that Parkinson's is a very heterogeneous condition and includes many sporadic patients, but often an increasing number of genetic causes of Parkinson's disease. And there does seem to be a variability in response to the different types of Parkinson's disease. Again, something we're looking at in more detail. Mm. So, so as well as the actual technique and the surgical procedure, this is really quite an integral part of the intervention. Absolutely, yes. And as well as the post-operative programming as well. 
because we have four contacts on the tip of each STN electrode, there is a lot of scope for varying the exact site of stimulation within the subthalamic nucleus, and also the, the voltage, the pulse width, and the frequency can always also be changed in quite a lot of detail to try and optimise clinical improvements and minimise side effects. As you've had such good efficacy and safety results, do you think that other centres should be moving over to this image-guided technique or any other aspects of your technique? What do you think should happen now? Well, there are some basic things which certainly should be embraced, such as avoiding trajectory, electrode trajectory through sulci, avoiding transgressing the ventricle, because we know both of those will increase the risk of bleeding. Where centres are very comfortable using microelectrode recording and they, they need to um, rely on those microelectrode recordings to optimise their electrodes, it may be unwise to try and completely shift from standard practice in that centre where their expertise lies in, in that technique to something that's image-guided and, and novel. But newcomers to deep brain stimulation should certainly look at the, the data that's emerging from people that do image-guided DBS compared with microelectrode-guided DBS, and they should, should certainly um, look at the image-guided technique as something which seems to be safer in, when performed well in hands such as ours. Great. Well, congratulations on your results and thanks very much for, for coming in and speaking to me. My pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more about these editors and Patients' Choice papers, they're both available for free on jnmp.bmj.com. You've been listening to the JNMP podcast. Next month, we'll be featuring research on cognitive impairment in older hospital patients and frontotemporal dementia. Join me then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.